Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. We've been saying for weeks that the move back is going to be slow and interesting and wonderful and we had to get used to Zoom davening and now we had to get used to hybrid davening. Um, and it, it, it's not easy to like speak to all of you, and I still want to be speaking to you because you are a part of this experience, you're a part of this minion, and uh, we appreciate everyone's patience as we get used to another stage of this. Um, we didn't know that this was going to be the date of the first in the sanctuary Shabbat service until a few weeks ago, but I've known forever that this week is Parshat Bahar. Uh, which meant that I've known for quite a long time, for a reason you're about to find out, what I was going to be speaking about this Shabbat. And it wasn't going to be about the fact that we're all davening together in the sanctuary. So we've made reference to it, but um, one could have made the argument that this would have been a great uh, opportunity to sermonize about that. But I think we're just going to experience that, and we'll go in a different direction in terms of the content. So as I said, I already knew months ago the basic topic that I wanted to address today And then as I was reading the newspaper yesterday, there was an op-ed in the LA Times, and it served up, by coincidence, a perfect intro, but sort of a chilling one. The headline of the op-ed was, We Can't Hold Back the Rising Seas. It was written by Gary Griggs, who's a distinguished professor of earth and planetary sciences at UC Santa Cruz. And his conclusion is that if some of the effects of a warming climate can be seen as a cancer, then we're in stage four. And it may be that there is no more that chemo, as it were, can do. There are certain aspects of coastal erosion and cliffs and bluffs failing into the sea and disappearing and the changing of shorelines and beaches. It's both getting worse and irreversible in some places. His argument, the earth is vast and it has a limit. And in some ways we have passed it. Even if we aggressively transform the economy and our way of life against fossil fuels, even if we hit key benchmarks, Even if all of that, there are enough greenhouse gases baked into our atmosphere and sea levels are most likely going to continue to rise. In other words, he's arguing humanity now has to move from prevention to preventing from making it too much worse and, alas, adaptation. Now, humans are good at that. We figure out how to act in personal, local national and global emergencies. Catastrophes hit, ones that we expect and ones that we didn't expect. They deliver a blow. There's loss and there is death and there is fear. And then the human species finds a way to right the momentary ship, to free the oversized vessel from the canal, as it were, to lift what has fallen, to render the current emergency smaller and more tolerable. But all this comes at an enormous cost of resources and lives. 
And too often we fail to remember that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or more. According to Griggs, we neglected prevention so very much and so very recklessly that even with tons of cure, the illness will be with us and it's going to change what it means to be a human being on this earth. This one earth that we have, this one earth with limited potable water, limited forests, limited arable land, a growing population, too often and in too many pockets, an all too indifferent population. Part of the earth's grandeur we have already squandered irreversibly. Now, the drosh today I want to share is not primarily around science. I'd like to think there is some general consensus on the issue of global warming, but I know there isn't. Perhaps there ought to be consensus about our Jewish obligation to be stewards of the earth, an earth more extraordinary, more solitary, more vulnerable than our ancestors ever could have imagined. And still, they and the Torah had much to teach us about our obligation to it. And some of that material appears in Parshat Bahar. In fact, if you read through the Parsha through a particular lens, we get a taste both of the need for and the efficaciousness of the preventive, prophylactic measures as we relate to the earth. And we also get a lesson in emergency medicine, as it were. Let's talk for a moment about Shemitah. There is so much to say about it. The notion of a farmer who is obligated after six years of working the land and pulling every nutrient and every productivity out of it to let it lie fallow, to hold back from the urge to force production from something which deserves a break, even the land. Now, according to halakha, according to Jewish law, if you're an observant Jew, those verses that we read in Parshat Bahar and all of the halakhic material that derive from it is irrelevant to us halakhically, practically, unless we live in the land of Israel. We are not obligated, as Angelinos, to observe the laws of Shemitah. You can be a perfectly from Jew and not pay any attention to the laws of Shemitah while you live in Los Angeles. It's an Israel land-based law. But our tradition is so much more than the halachic system, and so much more about than functional duty. And conceptually, I think Shemitah has to inspire us and inform us throughout the ages. And essentially, Shemitah is saying something very similar to what Professor Griggs is saying, which is that there is a limit. There's a limit to what this earth can provide over and over again without its being given a break. It's sort of a biblical version of Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. If you keep taking, it will not, it will stop being able to give. Part of Shemitah is built into the beautiful magic of the number seven. Sometimes I consider the number seven to be a proof of the divine. It's a number that's hard to explain why humans came up with it as significant. We understand a day. You can just watch it go from night to dark. You understand a month, you can watch the cycles of the moon. You understand a year, you can follow the seasons. You can't watch a week. There's nothing in the cosmos that tells you that it's Tuesday or Wednesday. And so the notion of things happening in a category, in a quantity of seven, 
emerge from some tremendous divine wisdom, I believe. But math and even climate science is less important than the actual concept of Shemitah. Our Torah and our sages knew that the short cycle, the seven-year cycle, and holding ourselves to that rhythm and our restraint and not having everything that we wanted was critical to the grand cycle. At some point, the Torah basically says to us there'll be nothing that God can do by some miracle to undo what we have done if we do not do what we are obligated to do. Connects with a Hasidic commentary on the 25th chapter of the book of Ayikra, verses 23 and 24. I forgot I needed a chumash in front of me. Hold on. Verses from Parshat Bahar. When the Torah and Parshat Bahar talks about Shemitah, we get words like this, beginning in verse 19 of 25, The earth will give its fruit. You'll eat as much as you need. You'll dwell very comfortably on it. And if you ask, what are we going to eat on that seventh year when we're not planting and harvesting? We're not going to put any seeds in the earth. We're not going to collect anything. What are we going to eat? I, God, will command my blessing upon you. That sixth year is going to be a doozy. You're going to produce as much in the sixth year. That you would need for three years. Why three? Because after the seventh year, which is the year after the sixth year, when you're not doing anything, you don't start even seeding again until the beginning of the eighth year. You eat the old stuff from that very abundant sixth year. Until the beginning of the ninth year. Until that produce begins to ripen, you're going to eat the old stuff. Old stuff. Verse 23. The land. It cannot be sold and used and, and forced to produce forever and ever and ever. The land belongs to me, Jews, not you. Because you are gerim, you are strangers on this land. Sojourners, imadi, basically my guests. That's how the verses end the section of Shemitah in Parshat Bahar. The pshat, the simple meaning of the verse, as we said, is that God said the land belongs to me. I know what it needs. I'm its true steward. But I assign you the task. All you got to do is follow my instruction. You're just a resident stranger here. You don't make the rules. A Hasidic commentary written by the Degel Machane Ephraim. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Ephraim of Sudlikov. He lived in the 18th century. He was a grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut. He reads it in a way that only a Hasidic Rebbe could. That word imadi, with me at the end of the phrase, he reads it not to mean with me, meaning that you're a stranger with me on my land, but along with me. As if to say, I, God, may have created this world, but I, God, am a stranger on it as well. In what sense? My realm is the supernal realm. 
I'm up there. You're down here. And the only way that I, God, can inhabit the world is if you make it hospitable to me. And the way you make it hospitable to me is to take care of it and do the mitzvot and make it ultimately hospitable to you. If it's not hospitable to you, then it's inhospitable to me and I remain a stranger on this earth. He links it to a verse from the 119th chapter of Psalms, verse 19, where the book says, Ger anochi ba'aretz, in God's voice, I, God, am a ger, a stranger on the land. Al taster mimeni mitzvotecha, therefore do not hold back your mitzvot for me. Since I, God, am a stranger in the land, don't hold back your obligations to it. You're doing them, and specifically doing the ones that allow you to remain on the land, are the only things that can create for me a home on this land. I hear the Degel Machane Ephraim across the centuries and across cultures and across eras of human existence speaking to this generation of plastic and factories and deforestation and wastewater seeping into oceans and oil spills and feverish consumption and asking us, what kind of world have we made for God? We try to open our hearts to let God in. But for God to be on earth, we must thrive, or at the very least persist on earth. At some point, even God cannot save the earth if we have chosen not to. Now, I think reasonable people can disagree as to the degree and the timing of an impending climate catastrophe. We can even disagree on the direct and indirect forces that are contributing to a warming climate. But I don't think we can disagree on the fact that our tradition asserts that God expects that this is part of our holy task. It's as significant to being a Jew as observing Kashrut and Shabbat and the holiday and honoring our parents and averring that God is one. That part of our obligation is to take the proactive prophylactic, mitzvah-inflected measures that keep this organism, the earth, alive. The next verse in the Parsha, after discussing these proactive measures, begin with the words, ki achicha. If your kinsman falls down and is in straits, describes a system if the system doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Let's say the economy failed him, he's in an emergency You help, of course, the Torah says. You go into emergency mode. You lift him up. You make him whole. It's almost as if that juxtaposition is setting up what in halachic language we'd call the lechachila and bidiavad situation. Lechachila, a priori, make it so that your fellow does not fall. Make it so that the earth does not fail him and that the economic system does not fail him. Bidiavad, if you haven't done that, obviously you have to help him after the fact. But that's not the ideal. If we do it right, we'll never descend into emergency, the Torah might be hinting at us. It's so much better to help your kinsman before he stumbles. Later on, the Torah will say, a few verses later, it's so much better not to overload a donkey than have to pick him up and the stuff he was carrying if he falls. It's so much better to keep the earth healthy to begin with than to try to resuscitate it 
when it goes into system failure. The Torah knew that. We have forgotten it too often. Part of it might be too late. All of it is incumbent upon us. Now, the reason I knew for months I was going to be speaking about this topic in some way on this Shabbat is that in a sort of quiet way so far, which is about to get loud, our community is launching when the next Shemitah cycle begins in Israel, this coming Rosh Hashanah, kind of a green team 2.0. This community had a green team 10, 15 years ago that focused on issues related to environmental health and ecological health, and it kind of fizzled out. And thanks to the vision and commitment of our own rabbi, Dr. Avi Havivi, who by profession is a psychiatrist but also a trained rabbi, we are recreating this team. And we have a wonderful group of people who are already beginning to think how our community can observe Shemitah not as farmers in the Galilee, but as residents of this city, as members of this community and as human beings who owe something to the earth on which we're living. And there are going to be many, many aspects where our community is going to invite you into participating into this. But there are three basic rungs. One is just learning, just spending time in class after class after class, learning what our tradition has to say about the earth, its production, and its limits. We're going to try to approach it from as many different angles as possible, as uh, accessible as possible to anyone who's interested in it. That's going to start around the high holidays. The second is our campus. We're constantly changing our campus. We're building. We're part of the problem. We, 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 we build, and we're not necessarily always focused on the ecological impact of our building, but there are things that we can do on 1039 South La Cienega that can more proudly allow us to stand and say, see, we're listening to the Torah's admonition about this as well. And the third rung will be suggestions, recommendations. We can't obligate. We don't live in the shtetl anymore where we can really obligate you to do certain things at home. But ways in which you can take your mundane life at home, operating a family, operating an apartment or a home, and attach more of your activities towards the notion that part of your Jewish obligation is to serve the earth that we live in. We want this year to be the beginning, not an end, a year of awareness and activity and enough urgency that we feel properly responsive both to the situation our earth finds itself in and the age-old wisdoms and obligations and chastisements and inspiration of our people, our people who have always been on the earth, our people who once were much more of the earth, and our people who remain sacred caretakers for the earth. Because at some point, it will have no more to give us. And where will God dwell then? You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.